we know that most chronic illnesses are only 20% genetic. The rest is actually environmental. Something in your lifestyle, something in your environment is going to turn on and off those genes. And the gut microbiome is actually known to turn on and off genes. So it's modulating our genetic material. So how exciting is that, that we have that, that the gut microbiome has the capability to do it? Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, hosted by Dr. Sammy and Dr. Anna, two board-certified pediatricians and best friends known as the PediPals. This is a safe space where parents, caretakers, guardians, and those interested in pediatric health can find accurate parenting and medical information to raise healthy and happy children. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at the PediPals or visit our website at www.thepdpals.com. We are so grateful to have had a successful first season where we invited widely respected experts to discuss important topics. Here's to an even better season two just for you. Welcome to another special episode of The Well Child. We are so grateful for our community for joining us week after week and now into season two. And we're super excited to bring you more exciting podcasts. The podcast that we're having today is one that we've been looking forward to from the moment we started this podcast. We wanted to talk about gut health and we wanted to get special experts on the podcast because it's so, so important. And it's something we talk about throughout all of our episodes. Today, we have a very special guest to help us talk about this big topic. Her name is Dr. Vanessa Mendez. She is a board-certified gastroenterologist and internist. She specializes in digestive orders, which include liver disease, inflammatory bowel disease, and nutrition-based disorders, such as obesity and constipation. Her approach to patients and their diseases is holistic and comprehensive, and that's why we love her so much. Her goal is not just to treat the symptoms, but to get to the root cause of the ailment and provide lasting relief. All of her methods are evidence-based, and she is a proponent of lifestyle changes first to promote wellness. She also has a special interest after having her own struggles as a parent in gut health. Dr. Mendez attended Harvard University, where she obtained a BA in Latin American Studies with a minor in pre-medicine. From there, she began her medical training at the ACGME-accredited Universidad Central de Cariba in Puerto Rico, <laughs> completed her residency in internal medicine at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital and her fellowship in gastroenterology at Tulane Medical Center in New Orleans. She has also trained in epidemiology through Florida International University and in plant-based nutrition through Cornell University. She was awarded a visiting fellowship at the Mayo Clinic through the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, where she received special training in inflammatory bowel diseases. So you can say that she has the credentials to be here and help us with this discussion. We are so excited to have her. She also was awarded the physician champion at the Take Steps Walk 2019 for Gastro Health Team. So after that awesome intro, welcome, Dr. Mendez. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, this is such a, an exciting podcast for me to record because, um, you know, uh, health and especially gut health and microbial health starting in childhood is a passion of mine um, through my own, you know, 
search as a new mother, it really just uh, took me on this on this road that I think it's it's never ending. Um, but I'm really excited to be here, and thank you for having me on. Thank you. We're so excited to have you. I, I, the first thing I want to say is like, tell us everything you know. We have so many questions. We want to ask you about kids and specifically like dietary recommendations that you have. We also want to ask you specifically about inflammatory bowel disease. So we have a lot we want to cover in a, in a short-ish period of time. But first, can you kind of just tell us a little bit? I know you had a journey with motherhood. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know, I'm a gastroenterologist by training throughout my residency and my fellowship and med school. You know, um, I, I trained like everybody else. We were really were not, you know, taught a ton about nutrition. Um, I think the average is, you know, anywhere between four and like 20 hours of nutrition training that most of us get. So um, my journey in, in my own practice in gastroenterology um, really left me kind of like um, devoid of, of, you know, um, of that passion and that drive because it was all about medicating patients through regular, you know, medications. But I saw my patients just were relying on the medication and not really getting better, right? Um, and we weren't really addressing the root causes of of why they had heartburn or constipation, et cetera, and we were just treating um, like a Band-Aid. Um, so um, that sparked an interest in me and, and um, through my, uh, you know, my journey with my husband's uh, inflammatory bowel disease, he's had it since he was 16 years old, um, I had a special interest in inflammatory bowel disease. So I went through that. And then um, I, um, the whole nutrition interest came about when I was in fellowship and we were both struggling. We were training, I was training in Tulane and um, in New Orleans and, you know, we we're eating the regular Louisiana fare. Um, so, which is, you know, <laughs> it's delicious, but it's very heavily, uh, it relies heavily on, you know, butter and cheese and, and fried foods. So we were just feeling like really ill. So at that time, I was just like, okay, my patients are not getting better. I'm getting sicker. So let me really explore this whole nutrition, um, you know, area. So um, that started my nutrition interest. And then I got tr extra training in nutrition, et cetera. Um, and then we got pregnant, you know, um, during that time when we were uh, transitioning to a more plant-forward diet, but we got, we got pregnant right away. And um, um, then I, you know, I had a pretty healthy, uh, pregnancy. Um, and, uh, then my delivery was a little bit traumatic for me. Um, so I basically, um, you know, I was in labor for a long time and, um, I required antibiotics during, during 30 hours of labor, eventually needing a C-section. Um, so it was definitely not the experience that, you know, most of us want for um, bringing a child into the world, but thankfully everything went well. You know, I was, I went through it well and my child went through it well, but then those first early months of motherhood, you know, you really start to think about all the, all these things that you weren't prepared for that even as a physician, you weren't prepared for, and you really didn't know um, what resources and what what things to ask for in terms of help, because you, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Um, so, um, uh, after reflecting on all of that, after, you know, now, now my son is two and a half, almost, you know, almost three years old, it, these 
these two and a half years have really um, driven me to search more about the gut microbiome. What role did all these things that went through um, his birth like play in the rest of his, you know, in, in his in his health, in his life? And what can I do as a mother um, to really optimize, you know, all we can do as, as parents is really provide that supportive environment for them to, to grow into the people they're going to grow into. Um, we really can't control, um, you know, the type of their health. We can't control what body <laughs> type they're going to have, you know, where they're going to be small for their age, whether they're going to be big for their age. All we can do is really provide them with a supportive environment um, to thrive both physically and mentally. So really that's been my, um, my search for what are, what is that? Um, you know, everybody's searching for the fountain of youth. I'm searching for that fountain of, you know, microbial resilience and that microbial optimization. So, um, you know, I talk about this a lot on my blog, um, and it, it's just been a passion of me. Like, what are the steps? What exactly does it mean to have a healthy gut microbiome at this time based on the on the evidence that we have, what does that mean? And how, how can we optimize that for children? So, you know, the million dollar question is you've definitely set the groundwork beautifully, but tell our audience, why should they even care about their kids' gut microbiome or their own? Why is it even important? Yeah. So, um, so the microbiome world and research has exploded in the last five to 10 years. And, um, every week we, new articles are coming out uh, with new information about the role of the gut microbiome in health. And what we're seeing is that uh, chronic illnesses, which are the predominant um, you know, burden of disease in the United States and in westernized nations, these chronic illnesses um, are, you know, are, are related all back to the gut microbiome and, and microbiome imbalances. So Everything is relating back to the gut microbiome, starting from childhood, um, whether it's as, asthmatic diseases, autoimmune disorders, whether it's autism, if you can believe it, autism is being related back to, to the gut microbiome, ADHD, you know, so just that's just talking about childhood diseases. But later on, how does that translate? We're also seeing chronic illnesses like uh, autoimmune disorders in adulthood and um, cancers and cardiovascular disease and, and, and respiratory illnesses all relating to these microbial imbalances. So you would think, oh my God, something, you know, all these microbes, yeah, they're there, you know, they're in the gut and they're going to affect gut health, but it's also being related to, um, having, being related to all different diseases throughout the body, including anxiety and depression and, 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 you know, um, neurologic disorders like Parkinson's disease. So this area is really in its infancy and it's, I, I, it's exploded in the, fi- the last five to 10 years, but it's going to even, you know, it's going to be a, a big, big um, boom that's going to be coming out in, in terms of microbiome um, research in the coming decade or two. And I think what's so exciting about this area is that it's focusing now on preventative. You know, where Western medicine was so focused on the now, you know, fixing the ailment right away, the emergency medicine, you know, we've got that down to an art, you know, fixing the problem right away, 
um, and and uh, getting you know taking care of an emergency. But this whole idea of how do we prevent diseases and how do we uh, do the right things? I mean, that's really ultimately where I think uh, the Western medicine is lacking in in some ways. The holistic approach is what do we do? And that's why I think all of us are in pediatrics to some extent because we have that opportunity to really impact kids from the beginning, you know, things we're discovering now, we're like, oh, we would have done this 30, 40 years ago. <laughs> Maybe we wouldn't have had to deal with some of our ailments that we're having now. So I, that's why I think this topic is so important, but in your mind, so just to break it down, the micro, the microbiome is a bunch of different bacteria and fungi and all kinds of, um, I guess, different elements that are creating an immune an immune system, basically, that are um, basically uh, monitoring everything that's coming into your body, right? It's the first line of defense, right? So, so basically, let's let's break it down. What is the gut microbiome? The gut microbiome is these hundred trillion microbes, right, that live in our mostly our large bowel, our colon, um, and um, we have different microbiomes throughout our body. We have a skin microbiome. We have an oral gut mic uh, an oral microbiome. We have women have a vaginal uh, microbiome. So we have different micro microbiomes throughout our body. Specifically, the one we're talking about is the gut microbiome, which is the one that resides in our digestive system, mostly in our colon. And it's made of, it's the largest microbiome in our body. And it's made out of a hundred trillion microbes, like you all said, um, made up of viruses, bacteria, fungi, you know, so when people say, oh, you know, I have candida, I got to treat it. No, you, it's a natural, you know, inhabitant of your body. Um, so it's all these microbes that um, create an ecosystem in our large bowel, in, in our colon and their role in health um, they're literally involved in everything. They have their little dirty fingers in every part of our health. Um, so 70% of our immune system is in our gut. So they are, they are actively also modulating our immune system, even from birth, you know, so that priming of the immune system is crucial when it comes to the gut microbiome. It's in constant communication with the immune system and it's priming the immune system for health or disease later in life. Um, it's also involved in metabolic. It's also involved in turning off, on and off genes. So when we talk about, you know, oh yeah, I have a genetic predisposition to this disease. It runs in my family. Yeah, but we know that most chronic illnesses are only 20% genetic. The rest is actually environmental. Something in your lifestyle, something in your environment is going to turn on and off those genes. And the gut microbiome is actually known to turn on and off genes. So it's modulating our genetic material. So how exciting is that, that we have that, that the gut microbiome has the capability to do it. Um, it's also involved in the gut brain um, and now called the gut-brain microbiome axis. So, I mean, you you name it, it's involved in it. It's really involved in, you know, metabolic disorders such as, you know, obesity, diabetes. Um, um, the list just goes on and on. The gut microbiome also synthesizes amino acids, synthesizes um, things like vitamin K. Um, it digests um, fiber right? It, I digest carbohydrates that we can. So as human beings, we 
only encode in our genetic material um, a certain amount of enzymes to digest foods. And our, we have the enzymes to digest you know, proteins and fats down pat because there's only a limited number of proteins and fats. But when it comes to plant foods or, you know, fiber rich foods, there's countless plant foods. So it was not evolutionarily, um, you know, feasible or energy efficient for human genetic material to encode all the enzymes necessary to digest all these different fibers, especially because, you know, our diet changed, right? Uh, through evolution, our diet changed. It changed with the seasons, it changed with the region. So we left that job up to the gut microbiome. So when people say, oh, I can't digest this or I can't digest that, usually it means they have a microbiome imbalance because the microbes are the ones that are digesting these, you know, these fiber-rich foods. Um, so, I mean, their job is so extensive and we're just scratching at the surface of what, what role they play in, in health. And um, now the next question is, how do we modulate them so that they work for us and not against us, right? Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you for that thorough explanation. So to kind of educate our audience, and everyone knows what the microbiome is and how important it is and why it's such a emerging field of research right now and why people like you have such a big passion in it. And I'm so glad you do. What can parents do? Um, do can you kind of walk us through just some general advice of how they can optimize their kids' health through diet and other stuff? Yeah, so um, that is definitely a loaded question. So let's start with the basics again. Yeah. Um, how does the gut microbiome develop, right? So um, most, you know, we used to think that the gut microbiome, like let's say in a child, um, started to develop with the time when they were born. Now there's conflicting information regarding that. And there's actually some, um, some, you know, some data showing that multiple studies and uh, studying different types of, of um, things showing that uh, the microbiome may start developing in utero because we have found that there's a placenta microbiome and, um, and in, you know, there are studies in preemies um, that show that there's a microbiome too. So it, you know, that is still an evolving field, that area specifically, but definitely at birth is when um, kids get their big rush of microbiome, whether it's through, you know, the birth canal or whether it's through C-section. So if it's through the birth canal, the child is going to come out and it's going to be, you know, um, uh, kind of like inoculating themselves with our vaginal microbiome and, and probably our rectal microbiome as well, the mothers, right? And through C-section, um, then um, they encounter the skin and the open air and environment, right? So um, there are differences in the microbiomes of children born by, you know, by uh, vaginal or C-section. And, um, and we know that the first three months of life, really the first two to three years of life are key in priming the immune system. But those first three months show that there is a difference in the, you know, in the gut microbiomes, whether you're born vaginally or by C-section. And, um, and, you know, um, obviously we don't have control over that, right? Like I, I mentioned, you know, I had, I, I still have a little PTSD from my, my birth experience because I was in labor for a long time and I really tried to have, you know, a vaginal birth, but I couldn't at the end of the day. And, um, that's it. Like the, that's the reality. There's not much we can do about that. So I don't want 
mothers to, you know, in all this conversation, I wouldn't want mothers to one, judge themselves. You do your best, you prepare, and then, you know, life is going to throw whatever's going to throw at you. And then we cope with it. The truth is that at, after three months old, when like, let's say four to four, four months to six months, when you start, when you start introducing solid foods, then the microbiome is going to change again. So at that point, actually the kids' microbiomes are similar, but whether they were born by C-section or by vaginal birth. So at that time, their microbiome starts to become very similar because the you're introducing solid foods. So the microbiome is preparing itself to be able to digest these solid foods. Um, so the science also tells us that the microbiome matures really early in life. It actually shows that by the age of two to three, um, we have a mature microbiome. Um, some small studies suggest that in some, uh, in some kids, it, it may be delayed even till like they're 11. But most of the studies uh, do show that by the time that they're three years old, um, they have a mature gut microbiome. And that makes sense because the gut microbiome's role is so important in that digestion of fiber that we want it to mature earlier than not, you know? Um, so um, basically, like even just talking about introduction of allergens earlier on, if you think about it, those first, yeah, so those, you know, those first, um, you know, that first year of life, it's so important that you introduce those allergens because that's when you're priming the immune system. You're introducing the allergens through the mouth, through the oral cavity. They're going into the gut. The microbiome is being exposed to it. It's communicating to the immune system and it's telling them these are okay. These foods are okay. You know, so I'm going to be immunotolerant to them. So the microbiome's role is to really detect when it should be tolerant to foods and when it should detect something as a as a pathogen and invade you know and some an like an invasion and and when it should launch an attack. So that in you know that immune detection and that immune priming early on is essential for what's going to come next because kids that don't develop a healthy immunotolerance are kids that are going to have issues with allergies, that are going to have issues with autoimmune disorders, and, and likely chronic inflammation, but definitely the first two, you know? So um, it's really, really important. So basically, by the time kids are two to three years old, they have a mature gut microbiome. So those first three years of life are really essential. Now, when it comes to the gut microbiome, there's um, components, environmental factors that negatively affect it. And there are some that positively affect it. So some of the ones that negatively affect it, we already, um, you know, we already detected C-section is one of them. Um, antibiotics in the first year of life is another big one. And in fact, kids that have, you know, that have to take antibiotics in that first year of life, um, their risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease later on is really high. And it's really scary, you know? So Again, this is a point where I want to pause and let, let us tell, you know, parents, antibiotics are life-saving. And when we need to use them, we need to use them because it will save your child's life. Now, however, pause on that because 50% of antibiotic use, it is not warranted at all. It's for viruses, which we know don't, are not treated with antibiotics. Time, time will treat the virus in supportive care. And it just, people think that, oh yeah, I took the antibiotic and now I feel better. Yeah. If you had let it 
run its course, you would feel better. So, so that's why I want parents to become smarter, ask questions. Does my child have a bacterial infection? Okay. Then antibiotics are warranted. Um, does my child need antibiotics for this? Why? Okay. Explain it to me. Perfect. It is, you know, it is warranted. Um, but if it's not warranted, if it's for a virus, then definitely, you know, um, then we don't. And you, you guys are more the experts on this than me. So I'd love to hear your take on antibiotic use, because I think that's so important um, to really address with parents. So tell me your take on that. Well, it was one of the things I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought it up. So Anna and I, um, we have a third partner. We practice very similarly, very, very judicious antibiotic use. We really don't like to, um, to do it. And um, there are situations, for example, strep throat being one of them, a legitimate strep throat infection, the risk of not treating um, outweighs the benefit of not treating. So you, you have to in those situations, but then there are other situations that you don't have to, like you said, most upper respiratory infections for kids are, uh, viral and they don't require antibiotic use. And there's a lot of education and time that goes into teaching our parents, this concept. The other thing is, um, if, if you and your doctor are on the same page, so I love what you said, like ask questions. The question should just be like, um, is the antibiotic necessary? Um, and uh, you'll be surprised, even if it's an urgent care and you don't have a relationship with that doctor, they might pause and go, probably not, or it's not really necessary, And but you should see your doctor in two days. Um, so a lot of the times that will be the case. We might see an ear infection and we don't know if it's viral or bacterial. And so we encourage our patients to come back in two days so we can check up on them again. That's stinks for working parents. It's not always practical, but if we're all on that same page of that, it's going to be a little bit harder. Sometimes it feels like antibiotics are like the quick, easy fix. If we're on the same page that at the end of the day, we are trying to save those antibiotics for life-threatening emergencies. We're trying to keep that gut microbiome healthy, your future, your child's future health healthy, but also, um, and the uh, micro sorry, bacterial resistance is such a big problem. Um, so it's just, I'll let Anna chime in too, but we are 1000% on the same page. Yeah. And honestly, a lot of times when you take the time and explain it to parents that listen, your child's immune system is growing. And in these first three, four years of life is where it's really developing and growing. And so when you explain that you have all these good bacteria and every time you take an antibiotic, it's not only fighting the bad bacteria, but it's getting rid of your good bacteria which is providing you immune support. Uh, and most of them understand at that point. I mean, all of us, when we see a child suffering, we want the quick fix. We want, you know, a lot of times I tell them, listen, it takes me two seconds to write an antibiotic prescription. It takes me 20 minutes to explain to you why I don't think it's completely the necessary option. You know, it's not necessary. Or we can wait and see. Like Sammy said, it might be harder, it might take longer, but we always have to look at what the risk and benefit is, right? For everything, because nothing is without risk. Um, so yeah, sometimes you need it because the risk of letting that bacteria go unattended is, is like higher. Yeah, for example. Yeah, like a urinary tract infection, a pneumonia. A lot of pneumonias are viral, but sometimes they can be, um, you know, they can progress and kids can end up in the hospital and sometimes they need an antibiotic. So yeah, we can talk about <laughs> antibiotic use all day long, but, but no, we really appreciate that you said that because we definitely see the impact that it has on our gut 
and our immune health, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. The other thing that I wanted to just kind of uh, piggyback off what you said was parents shouldn't feel guilty. Uh, I love that you said that because uh, some parents that are here, their kids might be five, six or seven years old or older. And there's never, it's never too late to start, right? It's never too late to make a change. Um, You had circumstances, you know, you had a C-section, you had, you know, trouble during your pregnancy, you might not be able to breastfeed. There's all kinds of situations. And we know some of these things help, but there's always things we can do. Like for moms that couldn't have a vaginal birth, they can do more skin to skin. So then that helps improve their microbiome. So there's lots of little things like that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, so I love that you put an emphasis on that because this is not meant to be extra stress, you know, but yeah. what can kids, so parents that have school age children and, you know, they're picky eaters <laughs> and um, they struggle with this uh, processed food diet, you know, what kind of tips can you give them on the, you know, why it's so important to look at their diet? You're tuned in to the Wild Child Podcast brought to you by the PD Pals. The PD Pals is our passion project and not-for-profit company where we aim to educate and empower parents and guardians and offer you accessible health tips. Our mission is to also support future female doctors. We currently have interns on our team who are all at different parts of their medical school journey. If you'd like to support our mission and help with our podcasting costs, you can donate to our Venmo at the PD Pals or our Zelle, which is hello at thepdpals.com. We greatly appreciate our audience's support. You can also support our interns on Venmo at interns-pdpals. Yeah, so even going back to the, the, the last question, because um, we just went on that, you know, amazing talk about um, antibiotics, because I'm the same way. We could talk about that forever, especially because kids' illnesses are so different from adult illnesses, so driven by a lot of viruses, you know? Um, so... One positive thing um, in terms of adult microbiome um, is that, you know, the microbiome has this thing called the resistome. So it's what, what it says, right? It's they're resisting being wiped out. So even just like the bad ones have the, you know, the resistance to it, but so do the good ones. And that's good news. Um, but that comes later after the microbiome has developed, you know, after the three years old, old uh, three years of age. So um, that's also encouraging for parents, you know, and for, you know, for parents and their kids, um, that just because you're taking antibiotics, it doesn't mean it's going to wipe out your entire gut microbiome. Um, obviously broader spectrum, meaning it's targeting different, um, strains, um, you know, it's going to wipe out more, but also these microbes are really intelligent and they're duplicating every 20 to 30 minutes. So they are more intelligent than us. And um, they're building a resistance to being wiped out. So the good ones too. And that's really encouraging because what we're seeing is that, yes, antibiotic use does cause, you know, a transient um, change in the gut microbiome. And the broader, the more you have to use antibiotics, yes, the bigger the change. But there is, you know, they're working hard to come back too. And then there's the whole other question of of probiotics while we're using antibiotics. And we can talk about that later. Now, um, you also talked about breastfeeding. So we were talking about positive and negative influencers during, you know, during early life. So some of the positive ones are obviously breastfeeding, but even if you can't breastfeed, you know, and that's another area where I lack support 
And, um, you know, if I have the chance to do it again, then um, I would do it very differently. But as a first time mom, you really don't know. You don't even know what you don't know. So you don't know what to ask for help. Yes, I saw a lactation consultant in the hospital, but I only ended up breastfeeding for a very short amount of time because I had to go back to work in three months. Going back to work does not is not conducive to uh, breastfeeding. And yes, there are amazing warrior moms out there that can do it. But for a lot of us, it's not feasible. We have very high stress jobs. I literally do a procedure every 10 to 15 minutes. And I, you know, I was in a very tight space that the only place that I could, you know, pump was in a bathroom. I was sharing with patients that were coming in and out for their colonoscopies. You know, that's just not, yes, you know, there's always a way, but I think that kind of removing that stigma and really supporting our moms and our parents tons more. I think we have so much work to do in this, in this area. Um, and, um, and, and that's, you know, another part where obviously I felt torn that I couldn't, you know, breastfeed for a year. Um, you know, I had a nickel for every time I pumped in the car. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So why do, why does it, why is this so hard? Why are we not supporting, you know, parents early in, in, in this, um, in this way? So the positive influencers are obviously vaginal birth, breastfeeding. Um, other positive influencers are having pets and having siblings. Okay. So that exposure, I know we're living in the middle of a pandemic, so it's a lot harder now, but, um, having pets is definitely a positive influencer. Pets are carrying, you know, dirt from the outside. They have their own different micro uh, microbiomes. So that's a positive influencer. It, it, when we say positive influencers, it means it diversifies the gut microbiome, uh, diversity of the gut microbiome has been linked to health. Um, the higher the diversity, um, the more, you know, the more each subset of microbes can do their job. And we said their jobs are extensive. So um, siblings is another one. Um, and then um, food, nutrition, something as simple as something that you do every single day, multiple times a day has a huge impact on the gut microbiome. So what the studies show um, is that plant-forward diets really are at the forefront of diversifying our gut microbiome. There are studies showing that 30 plus plants per week is associated with a higher diversity of gut microbiomes. Now, obviously, when you're starting to introduce solids into, you know, to a child, they're not going to have 30 plus plants per week. But the goal is to get there. The earlier that you can prime those taste buds, you know, um, for all these different flavors, the earlier that they're going to develop a taste for, for these foods. And yes, you know, um, kids are going to go through their faces. They're going to go through their picky eating faces where they only want to eat, you know, uh, peanut butter and avocados. I don't know. Um, and you know, we have to roll with that and we can talk about that, but, um, definitely those early months of introduction of foods are really, really important. And the more, you know, plant forward we can, we can, um, in, you know, we can go that's associated with higher diversity of microbial, um, species. Cause each, each species of microbes is, also, is, is digesting a different fiber. So, um, if, for example, if you're doing, um, 
unnecessarily a gluten-free diet, then you're avoiding essential whole grains. And I said unnecessarily because some people need to do a gluten-free diet. But if you're avoiding, um, you know, glutens unnecessarily, then you're you're not uh, feeding the whole subset of microbes that, like for example, right, digest different different um, fibers or components in gluten-containing foods. So yeah. that's why it's essential to really talk to um, parents and, and patients about um, about nutrition because there's a lot of myths, misinformation being led by the media and, you know, marketing strategies out there that are really leading people um, in the wrong direction. Um, so that's, that nutrition is essential. Um, but yeah. Okay. I love this. And I want to make it digestible, no pun intended for parents. So let's say we all live in a perfect world and we don't have our obstacles, by the way, I do want, like, I really want to emphasize real quick what Anna said too, about we, this is not about mom guilt because I, one of my two girls had a million ear infections at a young age and ended up having to have tubes. And her mother was a doctor and her mother was in total denial of the whole thing. And so I can sit here right now and go, Oh my God, my seven-year-old had this risk factor against it. But I, there's no point parents of looking back in situations like this, live and learn. We moved on. We did what we had to do in the moment with the advice and the information that we had. And we always love our kids, but here we are now. So what can we all do together in the situation that we are? So assuming we all live in a perfect world, you said 30 different plant-based foods per week. That sounds like a lot, but if you think about it, we've got three meals a day, seven days a week. So if you offer one different one per meal, right? A plant-based food, you've already got your 21. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Okay. So right how do you nine more? Um, you could offer more than one per meal and then you've got your 30. But also, I mean, think of stir fries. Think of soup. smoothies. Smoothies. Yeah. Is my favorite way to introduce tons of different uh, plant diversity into kids as soon as possible. So if you think about it, kids love smoothies or they love popsicles and those are just frozen smoothies. <laughs> so um, there's so many different ways. Kids love energy balls. In energy balls, you can include so many different ingredients. I mean, you can include carrots, you can include oats, you can include um, chia seeds or hemp seeds, you know, so many different ways of uh, introducing diversity into kids' meals. So when we, you know, I think we're, we're, Sometimes we're just like overwhelmed by, oh my God, my kid doesn't eat any vegetables. Trust me, I can get your kids to eat vegetables if, if you present it correctly. You know, so um, there's just so many ways to really get them excited about, you know, foods in general. And one of the, one of the ways I love to do that is get them watching you cook earlier on, watching you prep meals earlier on. And then they're like, you see them, they start to salivate. And then you're like, you want to, you want to try it? And they want to try it. They don't like it. They don't like it. Um, so that, that just getting a child to try a food, you're winning, you're winning because that's a child that's receptive to exploring a new food. Um, and if they don't like it, I don't like many foods, <laughs> you know, we're, we're all little humans. And, um, another thing is that everybody has a unique gut microbiome. So we should have said this at the beginning, but, um, everybody has a unique gut microbiome and their unique gut microbiome plays uniquely where their set of genetic material. So they, we don't have a formula that says, 
this is the perfect gut microbiome and this is what you have to live up to. No. And that's what's so exciting about this field that, you know, it's, it's your own unique individual fingerprint. So even when the child's microbiome is mature at two to three years old, it's different from the parents, you know? Mm -hmm. So no two gut microbiomes are alike. The closest two microbiomes will be alike is when that, when that child is actually like, let's say they're breastfeeding. That's the, but after that, it starts to, um, go its separate way and to form its own unique, um, its own unique, um, microbial fingerprint. So, um, that's, what's so exciting. So nutrition is definitely a big one. And, um, another one that I'm super, super passionate about is, uh, and being exposed to nature. So one teaspoon of a regenerative soil literally has like a hundred billion microbes. Okay. It has to be regenerative soil. That means, you know, don't put pesticides on your backyard. Right. But, um, one, I mean, that's amazing. So any exposure to natural environments, the more you expose them to natural environments, the more you're diversifying their gut microbiome. So in terms of being, you know, being out in nature, uh, studies show that 120 minutes per week um, has been shown to be um, associated with with optimal health. So, you know, that's two hours out in nature. You split that into seven days. That's very feasible, and especially if we take a little extra time on the weekends to do it. And that's more important now than ever. Think about the times that we're living in. This is, you know, we've been living in a pandemic for a year and a half, and it's really important to identify this because I fear for these kids. I really do. If we don't talk about what we're talking about now, I mean, these kids, their their microbiome and their immune system is being primed in the middle of a pandemic. When we are cooped up inside, we are not exposing ourselves to other people. We are uh, disinfecting everything with harsh chemicals. So we really, now more than ever, it's our time to focus on nutrition, to focus on going on these nature walks or giving, getting them literally dirt, organic dirt, and giving them a little pot to play with. They love playing with dirt. Um, even if it's inside, they love playing with dirt. Um, that's, that's great. That's perfect. And then the other thing that I really am passionate about when it comes to, you know, building a resilient microbiome in kids is um, developing their emotional resilience from an early age. And that just, you know, that we can talk about, again, that's another whole episode that we can talk about how what strategies to do that. But it really is, you know, um, being, you know, practicing that mindfulness in front of them, teaching them about mindfulness and how do we do this? And uh, what does that mean? It's never too early. You know, my child, he's two and a half. He already has a yoga and, you know, a mindfulness book. And obviously that's an active and ongoing process and none of us are perfect, but these are the things that we need to be talking about right from the beginning and, you know, practicing what we preach in now modeling that behavior for him makes me be healthier. Um, so it's all good all around. Man, are you in the right spot? (laughs) (laughs) We love you so much. (laughs) Found our third. (laughs) I think this is so cute. Um, so a couple of things that you said, is it true? Um, and maybe you can help with this one. Is it true that someone can make a change in their gut microbiome in just two weeks? Is that yes. a true statistic? Okay. That's Absolutely. Cool. So, okay. so the gut microbiome, 
um, these microbes, like let's say a bacteria, let's take E. coli, its um, life cycle is 20 minutes. So actually in 24 hours, you have 50 new generations of microbes, 50 new generations of microbes. So absolutely, in fact, studies have shown that in a matter of three to four days, you can, you know, there was a study comparing a um, high fat, low fiber diet, you know, um, and one comparing a high fiber, low fat diet. And these groups were switched and their gut microbiome was tested before, after each intervention of these nutritional styles and their gut microbiome in a matter of three to four days, the ones that had a high fat, low fiber diet changed to a more inflammatory microbiome profile, like one we would see in somebody with inflammatory bowel disease. That's just in three to four days. So, you know, um, our microbiome is constantly changing. It's very dynamic. It's affected not only by what we put inside us, but also around us. So that's why, you know, the subject of nature, the subject of, um, you know, uh, chronic stress, environmental toxins is one that we need to be discussing because we need to know what we're getting ourselves into. Every, every time we spend a dollar on any product, we need to know what we're bringing into our home and around our kids, you know? And again, that's an area that can be very overwhelming for parents, but just one step at a time, you know, start, start, just start small, start with nutrition and go from there, you know, and then we can talk about the other steps to really, um, you know, optimize the, the, the toxicity in our home, et cetera. I just had a quick question because this is a question we get often and I kind of have a, a, you know, about probiotics and about vitamins. And a lot of times, I know it's a big topic and I know we can have a whole podcast about it, but I just wanted to get your brief input about it because I have a love-hate relationship with it. You know, I tell parents, you can't duplicate nature into a little pill. You can't duplicate a microbiome, you know, (laughs) a global microbiome into some probiotics. But, um, and so doing the foods, diversifying your nutrition and getting out in nature, of course, is the best way to do that. But what are your thoughts about vitamins and pro pro and prebiotics? Yeah, I love that question because, um, so RGI guidelines actually came out with their position statement last year and it was a miracle. None of us expected it. It was like a major thing. They literally combed all the data for all digestive disorders And they came out with these guidelines and basically they determined that probiotics have only been shown to be beneficial. And this is hundreds and hundreds of studies with thousands and thousands of patients where only three, three situations are we actually recommending probiotics at this time because benefits um, are greater than the risks. Um, so, you know, in preemies or, you know, low birth weight kids to prevent necrotizing enterocolitis, then we recommend probiotics. And I'm talking about digestive disorders. So you guys can tell me about, um, the pediatric population. Um, and then if you are taking antibiotics and you are, um, high risk for C. diff, and this is purely talking about an adult population, then we, if you are high risk for C. diff, so just a regular person that's going about their life. They don't have something like inflammatory bowel disease. They're not living in a nursing home. Um, 
it's it, they should really talk to their doctor because the benefits may not outweigh the risk. But if you're a high risk for C. diff, which is an infection in the gut that could be life threatening, then that is a time to take a probiotic. And then, um, and then the last one is in patients with inflammatory bowel disease who've had to have a resection of their bowel and have chronic inflammation from their pouch, a condition called pouchitis, very, very, very specific, then, you know, probiotics have been shown to be beneficial. In all other cases of digestive disorders, and especially in patients who do not have any, con- any medical conditions, the GI guidelines do not recommend the use of probiotics. And this is our field, right? Because we are gut health and we're dealing with everything in the gut. Um, we do not recommend probiotics. So it really needs to be a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in probiotics, you really need to talk to somebody who's knowledgeable about this. And let me tell you, a lot of practitioners out there are still are still uh, giving out probiotics like candy, and it's the guidelines don't support it. The evidence doesn't support it. And it goes back to why we each have a completely unique gut microbiome. When you are taking a probiotic, you are telling the body, hey, these eight to 20 strains of microbes are the ones that your body needs, but it may not be true for you because we don't know how those strains are going to actually interact with the strains you do have. So, you know, we break it down and I think we, we didn't break it down, but (laughs) we should have broken it down. Um, we have, you know, all these microbes in, in the gut, they, um, some people call them, some are good and some are bad, but it's not that black and white actually. So under the certain conditions, the good ones, quote unquote, can actually be pathogenic. And under certain conditions, the bad ones can actually do essential functions in our body. So it's not as simple as that. So these strains that we think are, you know, are beneficial. Yes, they are beneficial, but are they beneficial for you? So it's like one size fits all doesn't work. So we will get to the point of precision medicine at some point as the microbiome, you know, data grows and um, and our registries grow. But at this time, we cannot make a blanket statement that probiotics, you know, are beneficial uh, for 99.9% of the population and that they may help you. I have tons of patients that start taking probiotics because they think it's good for them. And actually, they develop something like constant constipation out of nowhere. They've never had constipation all of a sudden because they changed their microbiome profile to one that their body wasn't okay with. So it's really important, just like we we want to be judicious with antibiotic use, very important to be judicious with probiotics and also supplements, right? Because none of these things are FDA regulated. So when we say, oh, you know, antibiotics are so bad for you, or this life-saving medication is so bad for you, because of all these side effects. Well, that just tells you it's been well studied. We know exactly what we're getting. (laughs) But with supplements, we don't know what we're getting because it has not been studied. And every supplement company is left to themselves to regulate themselves. So if I'm a company and I want to get rich, am I going to regulate myself, you know, the way that I should? No. So nobody's testing these. They're not FDA regulated. And I have gotten many, many patients that have actually developed, uh, you know, elevated like liver injury. Some patients even have developed liver failure from taking supplements Um, and colitis, you know, protein supplements um, for athletes. I've gotten athletes with colitis, inflammation in their colon from taking supplements. So they're not, you know, no risk. What we do counsel is 
if we're deficient in something or we're risking deficiency in something, let's say you're 100% plant-based, you need your B12, right? So that's a time that you should be taking your B12 supplement. In kids, we know that they need fortification with certain things. So that's when it's recommended. But a blanket statement of, oh, let me try this and that on my kid could actually be hurting them more than helping them. So again, we have to be very, very wise when we make these choices. Often, uh, always for me, less, less is better when it comes to supplements because we really have to be very, very wise about it. That's amazing advice. And I think key message, everyone, she just explained why it's not a one size fit all for supplements, why it's not a one size fit all for probiotics, and more importantly, why it's not one size fits all for diets. Why doesn't keto work for everyone or Atkins work for everybody or Weight Watchers or what? This is exactly why, because we are all literally we're fingerprints. We're all different from each other. And the diet industry, this billion dollar industry is thriving off of this. And we continue to play this game with them. It's really disturbing. (laughs) So um, I think we're going to have to wrap it up soon, but there's so much more we need to talk about. So I really hope Dr. Mendez, you can come on for part two at some point. I know our audience learned a lot. The one last question that I was curious about, and again, you're going to be like, oh, there's a loaded question. I could talk about this for six hours, but inflammatory bowel disease. We do have so many patients, both of us that have it. We know so many people that are affected by it. Um, and it seems to be on the rise. Um, I think I would say we still probably don't know exactly what causes it. You have the genetic tendency. And like you said, something triggers it. And then you go into that, um, inflammation mode, but assuming that I'm right about that, if someone does have a child with that, what would, what advice do you have for them in, in, in the diet world again? Do you? Yeah. So I, I'm glad that you brought that up. So definitely inflammatory bowel disease, like autoimmune disorders, we know that there's a genetic predisposition, even though most of these kids don't have a family member that has these disorders. Um, there is a genetic predisposition, but something in your environment turns on and off these genes, right? So something in your environment triggered, um, and, and what we think is actually the middleman, because before we knew that it was a genetic predisposition and there was an environmental uh, factor that influenced that turning on and off those genes. Now the middleman, the key player is the gut microbiome. So what we're seeing, and this has been presented at major, you know, um, major GI conferences is that that middleman is the gut microbiome. So what happens is you have the genetic predisposition, something in the environment actually changes the gut microbiome that causes the turning on and off those genes. So um, for for these diseases, um, when we talk about medication, the medication is acting on the immune system's reaction within the gut, but it's actually not modulating the gut microbiome in any way or at least we don't have data that it is in a beneficial way. So, so the, what the studies show, and these studies are coming out of Japan and Israel, and you know the U.S. is a little behind, but we are seeing some studies come out now, but really Japan and Israel all are leading the way, where actually when we use nutrition with their therapy, or like if you have moderate to severe inflammatory bowel disease, you really need that medication, right? But sometimes in mild disease, you can get away with just nutrition. So this is what these studies are showing that in moderate to severe cases, 
when you compare using uh, medication alone to using medication with nutrition, the group using medication with nutrition reaches remission at a way higher rate than medication alone. We know that at best, these drugs work in 30 to 60% of our patients. Those numbers are not great, right? We want these drugs to work on all of our patients. 30 to 60% of our patients, that's the first biologic, usually around 50 to 60%. You know, it'll work on 50 to 60% with their first biologic. But then as you you fail that biologic, you change to your second biologic, actually the rates get lower and lower. So we're missing something in here. We're missing something. So these studies are showing that nutrition is not missing component because it's acting on the gut microbiome, which is leading the way. It is really that root cause that caused that inflammatory cascade. So if we're not talking about nutrition, when we're talking about inflammatory bowel disease, we're failing our patients. And let me tell you, most GIs are not you know, and it's really, really sad because then you're never going to change the course of your disease. Yes, you may go into remission, but you're fully relying on that medication for the rest of your life without anybody ever giving you any hope that you can change the course of your disease. So, I mean, I think the the data coming out on these, we need many, many, many more studies and way larger scale studies. Um, And it's just, you know, uh, it's, it's needed. So we want to modulate that gut microbiome and we want to use the medication because they're acting in on separate channels and they're going to work together. They're only going to enhance each other to be able to, um, get our patients into remission and healing and spare their gut, you know? So, um, one of the, you know, and then again, we can talk about this forever. Then what parents are really scared because what happens is that these kids, they have failure to thrive. So they're very, uh, many of them have failure to thrive. They're very susceptible to what people tell them about diet. So you often find them doing really restrictive dietary patterns that are only promoting that microbiome imbalance. It's not actually helping it. Um, And it makes sense, right? Because if the gut is not doing well, you're not going to be able to tolerate a lot of food, especially if the gut microbiome is out of balance. You're not going to be able to tolerate a lot of plant foods. So you see a lot of plant avoidance, right? A lot of fiber avoidance. And then the, the question is, how do we reintroduce fiber in a way that these kids can tolerate? So again, we can talk about this forever, Um, but really what I recommend is getting with a GI registered dietitian um, that can walk parents through this process of uh, food optimization. I think these kids all need a GI registered dietitian um, that really knows, you know, what the data is showing, which is, you know, let's introduce more plants and just how to do it in a way that they can tolerate and feel good. That's so, that's so fascinating. And then I, you also blew my mind with the whole plant resistance thing, because that made a lot of sense too. Yeah. So you have to power through it a little bit. Yeah. And then again, you know, there's ways to do it. So for example, we have, um, my RD and I, we have a, an IBD protocol and, um, some, you know, a lot of patients like they can't tolerate oats or even growths, right? So what we'll do, we'll do oat water. The oat water has prebiotics and they can tolerate it. So then you're re, you know, you're, you're really feeding the microbiome in a way that they can tolerate. So we'll do oat water for the first week. Then we'll give them a, a, a little a teaspoon of growth. So, you know, um, 
it, and then you you go on building from there. But what happens is that you know a lot of a lot of people have told them fiber is not is not good for them. That was the old you know that was the old thinking, and but many people still say it because you know if you have Crohn's disease and you have a structure, they're they're they can get blocked up with fiber. But well, how do you introduce that fiber? You introduce it in smoothies. You introduce it in soups. Starchy root vegetables are amazing for the gut microbiome. So like potatoes, you know, um, sweet potato, squash, pumpkin, all these root vegetables are like a gold mine for the gut microbiome. It feeds them and it's tolerable usually to a lot of people, you know? Um, so uh, it's just, there's different ways to do it. And we just have to empower uh, parents to, and, and teach them how to do it. Thank you so much. <laughs> so You're just a wealth of information. We really need a part two. Yeah. <laughs> we really do. We have so many more questions, but thank you again for joining us. This has been so much information and it's such great, important information. And I hope all of our listeners rewind and play this again and again to catch all the pearls. I know I am going to listen to it again. <laughs> but before we head out, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Um, I know we um, follow you on social media and we get lots of great information, but where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a website and I have a blog that I started, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. And I do have great, you know, I think blog posts on on kids and building, you know, resilient uh, microbiome in kids. Um, so that's on my website, drvanessamendez.com, dr for doctor, drvanessamendez.com. Um, but I'm also on social media, on Facebook and on Instagram as plant-based gut doc. Um, so yeah, you can find me anywhere or just Google Dr. Vanessa Mendes and you'll find my website. Awesome. Thank you again for joining us. It was wonderful. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was actually the funnest podcast I've ever done. <laughs> Seriously. <Yay. laughs> thank you. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.